that's also one of the hard things about flow is I agree with you. Like flow is so badass. It's so addictive. It's so interesting. People want more and more of it. And I think sometimes the hard part is like turning it off or saying no. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, for organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again. Breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, Rian Doris here with the Flow Research Collective, and welcome to today's episode with Dr. Nick Holton, one of our very own peak performance coaches here at the Flow Research Collective. In today's episode, we talk about an interesting topic, which is the danger of passion. We talk about ego inflation, the risk of excessive ambition, how that can lead one off a cliff, and what psychology has to say about it. You're going to love today's episode, especially if you're an ambitious peak performer, because it's going to provide some contrast to your thinking. So enjoy today's episode with our very own Dr. Nick Holton. Dr. Nick Holton, welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. It is great to have one of our very own peak performance coaches here today. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Our pleasure. So, Nick, you did your PhD in educational psychology, and I know your dissertation research focused on aspects of eudaimonic happiness, self-actualization, and other topics related to positive psychology in general. To kick us off, can you share the biggest insight or perspective shift you had while doing your PhD and doing your dissertation on that topic? Sure. Yeah. It's funny, actually, because just this morning I was listening to one of the the recent FRC radio episodes with Simon Sinek and Rich Devinney, which was a great episode. And Simon was was talking about, I think, his sort of process throughout life is sort of this evolving understanding of maybe what is true and untrue and, you know, kind of going through the scientific process. And I always think about my four years in my doctoral program in a similar light and that you finish a doctoral degree. A lot of people, especially in education, they ask you about a lot of things. You know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? you must know a lot, right? Like those, those sorts of things. And, and usually my response is the biggest takeaway from something like that is you learn very quickly that if it takes that long and that much time and that much energy and that much effort to know very, very little <laughs> about, about very specific topics, then imagine how little you know about everything else. I love that. That's a great point. It's a humbling experience and, uh, you know, it really kind of helps, I think, clarify like ignorance is bliss in some ways. You know, that's the big insight. But in terms of the topic, you mentioned, you know, eudaimonia. I really wanted to get a sense of, you know, the extent to which young people, in this case, high school students were experiencing those sorts of things in classroom settings. And, you 
the general takeaway from I found both in, in my research and then the actual study that I conducted is one, they can have those sort of experiences and two, they're not having very much of it, right? It'll vary subject by subject. I think some of that probably has to do with flow triggers and, and things of that nature, but we're leaving a lot, I think, on the table when it comes to cultivating deeper forms of satisfaction in classroom settings very often. And I, th I think that was probably the primary takeaway or insight. So what is a eudaimonic or eudaimonic experience? Is it primarily defined through satisfaction or how would you articulate that for folks? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, like anything in science, there's various conceptualizations. Generally, what you're going to hear is it's, you know, so a lot of people know hedonism, right? Hedonic happiness or hedonic well-being, mm -hmm. which is really like pleasure-based happiness. It's it's a ratio more or less of pleasant and unpleasant affect. Eudaimonic, and there are some people that argue that the, the two aren't all that distinct, but more often you're going to see that they are. Eudaimonic is less really about, I think, like joyousness or buoyancy. And it's, it's more about, am I cultivating character and virtue? Am I experiencing personal growth? Oftentimes, I think those experiences have a, a sense of relevancy, a sense of coherence or self-concordance and, and authenticity. And that ultimately is how I ended up kind of getting into, you know, a lot of the research from DC and Ryan and intrinsic motivation uh, that also brought me to, you know, Csikszentmihalyi's work and flow. Because there's a lot of conceptual and theoretical overlap between those sorts of things. And, and then, of course, that opened me up kind of to the world of positive psychology and self-actualization and, and optimal human functioning. Yeah, so I studied uh, philosophy for my undergrad. One of the things I found most fascinating, actually within moral philosophy, this, uh, this field is looked at primarily, which is just really the distinction between pleasure and happiness, which is a simpler yeah. way to put it. And, and it's very interesting, you know, first off, how distinct those two experiences are, how pleasure can drastically reduce happiness in certain instances, how happiness can exist without pleasure at all. You know, you think of someone volunteering in an incredibly difficult situation and having a really difficult family situation at home and having immense satisfaction and a deep, deep sense of fulfillment about what they're dedicating their life to, but very little pleasure. And then how happiness and pleasure obviously in certain instances can coexist mm -hmm. which i think brings us to you know to flow and, and and certain states like that so what is the uh the relationship that you see between eudaimonia and flow how, how did you end up coming across chicksemihau's work yeah i mean when i first started looking so i mean really it was almost in the reverse order i started looking at chicks at me high's work i think you know the first time you and i met like i often joke that um my biggest accomplishment of my phd right was being able to spell chicks at me high without, without looking it up <laughs> um and it was so fascinating because that's kind of what i was looking for is like okay what what is causing some students to be completely absorbed in what they're doing, seem to get a deep sense of satisfaction from it. There's not much prompting. There's not like, hey, you got to worry about this deadline and this assignment. They just want to go, right? And flow was really sort of the, the closest thing that I had found to that. 
What I wasn't really sure about was whether flow was really kind of an example of satisfaction or happiness uh, that people were kind of experiencing because of these immersive moments inside classrooms, right? It seemed like flow was kind of the, the performance piece being in it. And then I was kind of wondering, well, what's the result of it? And I thought eudaimonia was really kind of one of the closest things to that. And it's interesting now because, you know, at FRC, we do a little bit around the PERMA model, right? Uh, Martin Seligman's PERMA model, which is one of the academic models for flourishing. And, you know, I work at the Shipley School here in Philadelphia, and we have a good relationship with Penn and with Marty. And if you listen to like Marty's 2005 TED Talk and you look at some of the scholarship around it, what you'll see is that the E in PERMA, which stands for engagement, a lot of people will argue it's really broken down into two things. One is character and the other is flow. And sometimes they'll actually argue that it's it's getting into flow through the development of your character, which I think is an interesting sort of direction that you take it and not necessarily one that we always do through our work here at FRC, but it's really kind of, you know, not just being immersed in peak performance, say a sport or business performance or something like that, but, but how we're really crafting and cultivating the sort of human beings that we want to be. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say sometimes I think where flow stops and eudaimonia starts or vice versa. I, I think there's probably a lot of overlap between the two. Yeah, it's really interesting. And the PERMA model for folks that are that are listening, it stands for positive emotions, engagement, which is what Nick is saying is synonymous with flow here, relationships, meaning, and achievement. And I love that bifurcation of the model there. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. That's really interesting. And uh, I do think that you know you you need an overarching context within which flow is occurring that is meaningful and aligned to your values and belief in what is good for an overarching sense of eudaimonia to take place. I mean, you can get into flow binging on a video game that you consciously know is terrible for your life, your well-being, the responsibilities you've got to other others, and it can be pleasurable momentarily and not contribute, I would imagine, at least to eudaimonia. So how do you see flow giving rise to, you know, that overall broader sense of, of well-being and satisfaction? Yeah, I think, you know, one cool thing about digging a little bit deeper into some of the science and the neurobiology of flow is really kind of looking, I think, at the intrinsic stack, Right. And, you know, Stephen talks about them happening in a particular order, although, you know, he was I mentioned to you, he was just recently on our podcast and he, you know, he was he was honest in that it doesn't necessarily have to take place in this particular order. But it's worth mentioning the order we, we often see it in, which is, you know, kind of starting with curiosity, developing curiosities into passions and then passions kind of being drawn out through a sense of purpose. And I think purpose is probably where you really start to see a lot of that overlap, right? When we talk about cultivating character, experiencing personal growth, I think this, the basic question is for what, right? To what end and for what purpose? You know, my bias is that the sort of deepest states of flow that we tend to get into is when there is a sense of purpose attached to it 
when there is a sense that we're bringing the me to positively impact the we, you know, where our individual traits, talents, skills, strengths, characteristics contribute to something that in many ways transcends our own self, our own individuality, and, and makes us feel like, you know, to use Scott Barry Kaufman's language from Transcend, to makes us feel like we matter, right, to the people around us and to the communities around us and to, to humanity as a whole. Like we have something to contribute. And through flow, we can contribute that to a kind of the utmost degree, right, and really actualize our greatest potentials. Yeah, I love that mention of personal growth, but for who and for what? Super important point, and it, it's such a powerful reframe as well because it's very easy to get self-indulgent as hell with yeah. respect to, to personal growth and to become less present, more selfish, less focused on others, and enter a sort of you know anal retentive mode of being obsessed about ticking off every single habit before you will calmly and pleasantly interact with a spouse or something like that. So I love that point that, you know, ultimately there should be an overarching context, ideally of some kind of service to something broader than yourself, which is often how Seligman describes meaningfulness and how it emerges. Yeah. Happiness, you you know, happiness alone can be a really selfish pursuit, right? You know, you Mm -hmm. mentioned it earlier, like just chasing pleasure, you know, there's a place for that, right? Like we're aware of like Barbara Fredrickson's work, like, there's a place for pleasantness. There's a place for positive emotions. They're nourishing. They amplify us. You know, the awesome meta analysis from Sonia Lear Bormirsky, you know, really articulating the well being boost or the happiness advantage, if you will, that we're better at pretty much everything in life when we're generally feeling good. But again, you know, that can be a really selfish pursuit. And I think some of the deeper, and certainly, you know, Stevens mentioned this, Marty's mentioned this. Uh, I think we teach it at FRC as well, that there's kind of levels of, of happiness in the terms of the way that they sort of are associated with and predict overall life satisfaction, which is a different sort of thing, right? Happiness tends to be more momentary. Life satisfaction tends to be a little bit more stable, a little bit more holistic and retrospective. And what you're going to see is that hedonism doesn't have great associations with overall life satisfaction in a lot of the literature, but eudaimonia and more specifically flourishing, perma, whatever that might be, it does. And I think that really speaks to, you know, kind of the the selfless aspects of of some of these experiences, not only the self-interested aspects. Yeah, there's a big long-term, short-term split between the pleasure side of the equation, the happiness side of the equation that I find really interesting. And then, I mean, one of the amazing things though about flow and aligning your intrinsic motivational stack is that you can have both simultaneously Mm. and optimal performance. That's one of the things that makes me so passionate about flow is that it combines all of these different elements. It's incredibly pleasurable. It's a state of optimal performance in which, you know, your output within whatever activity you're doing and in flow in is going to be maximized. And then it drives overall sense of life satisfaction and well-being and meaningfulness again so long as you've got that alignment in place with respect to what you're getting into flow doing and and in terms of what how do you recommend people and maybe you can speak a little bit to how you work through this with clients but if someone wants to align their intrinsic motivational stack have both the passion 
on the flow state itself and the overarching purpose. How do you suggest people get there? What are some of the things they can do? Yeah, it's a great question. I think whether it's clients, students, I think the most basic question is, what do you care about? And more specifically, what do you care about just kind of beyond your own needs? Now, that inherently is a privileged question, right? It's a little harder to, I think, consider that question if you have to worry about core needs, right? Food, water, shelter, general safety, those sorts of things. But assuming, you know, you have the ability to sort of look beyond those. I mean, it sounds kind of crass, but sometimes I'll ask people like, who or what would you take a bullet for? And, you know, sometimes that's causes more often than not, it's people, either individuals or collections of people. So, you know, at FRC, we use we use the term purpose frequently, but often we use the the Peter Diamitis term, right? Massive transformative purpose, which is great. That's awesome. You know, I love I love working with people who want to go out and change the world. And also not everybody has like a, a massively transformative purpose for, I think some people, what they care about, what they feel a lot of purpose for is taking care of their family, being a part of a team, you know, working hard and doing great things for a nonprofit that has an impact on a, on a local community, a national community, a global community, whatever it might be. But You know, I think if you can really, like I said, the me and the we, if you can really step back and say, okay, what do I want to contribute that isn't just my own individual self-interest? That's a really, really good place to start. And from there, you can kind of backtrack. And, you know, I think this is part of the point that that Stephen makes as well. Well, at that point, you can start looking at some of the other components of intrinsic motivation like mastery and say, okay, well, if I want to make this contribution, what is it that I need to master? What is it that I need to be good at or get better at? What weaknesses maybe do I need to, you know, bone up on a little bit? What strengths do I need to leverage? And I think that's part of the challenge with with young people, especially as well as, you know, part of that is developmental, like adolescence, you know, is is primarily a time period of self-interest very often. You know, you're kind of trying to figure out who you are and, and worry about what's happening next. And are you going to kind of on the, the path or trajectory to, to be able to get a job and secure basic needs and all that sort of stuff? But in general, I, I think more often than not, you're going to find most people, most human beings, they have a sense of what's meaningful to them. They they do want to contribute. They do want to matter. So I, I find it very useful to start with that question more often than not. Hey there, just going to interrupt. If you are a leader, a knowledge worker, or an entrepreneur, and you want to take your professional success to the next level while reclaiming time space and freedom within your personal life, then Zero to Dangerous may be a fit for you. Zero to Dangerous is our flagship peak performance training. You'll work one-on-one with our coaches. You'll go through our whole curriculum. You'll join a community of peak performers from all over the world. We're about seven or 800 strong at this point. It's an amazing group. So if that's of interest to you, go to getmoreflow.com, getmoreflow.com, pop an application through, takes 30 seconds. We will be excited to speak with you to see whether it's a good fit. So getmoreflow.com. The specific way you articulated that question as well around having something to die for, or what would I take a bullet for? I think it's a really good starting point actually yeah. to journal on, you know, what would I die for? And I don't know if this is 
true empirically, but my sense from reading history and things like that is that in general, less people have less that they would die for in, in today's age versus, you know, throughout the, the past two millennia. And I, I think the point that you mentioned as well about a massively transformative purpose, not necessarily being the only way is really, really, really important as well, which is that, you know, maybe the thing you would die for is not building rockets to get us to Mars, but maybe it's just the value of friendliness or family or integrity or, or something much more simple and grounded like that. But it's still something that's beyond yourself that you hold up as something more significant. That's, that's worth more than, than you alone and individually. What's generally the hardest thing for people when going through this kind of process within the coaching experience specifically? There's a couple different things. When you're talking about purpose or a a massive purpose, a lot of times it's people putting a pressure on themselves. If they're uncertain or unclear, like, oh, I got to have this MTP, right? What am I going to do if I if I don't have this MTP or I don't have this sense of purpose? And when we had Scott Barry Kaufman on our podcast, he put it really well, right? Like not everything you do in life has to be oriented towards your purpose, has to be attached to your purpose. Like there is some room for just pleasantness. There is some room for, you know, hanging out and and savoring and just being around people and, and those sort of things. So I think ultimately the the most difficult part is for people to really step back and say, okay, yeah, I want flow. What do I want it for? And then kind of what's my breakdown, right? If you're talking about PERMA, I'll always say like PERMA pie or something along those lines. But I more often than not, will mention a flourishing recipe and I'll show people PERMA. I'll also show people the six domains that the Harvard Flourishing Program uses, and this includes similar things like happiness, life satisfaction, character and virtue, mental and physical health, relationships, meaning, that sort of stuff. We might look at SBK sailboat metaphor, Carol Riff at Wisconsin, her model for psychological well-being, but, but basically looking at these different components and saying, okay... Generally speaking, here's what contributes to the good life for a lot of people, for I'd say in many cases, most people. How do you want to break that down? How do you want those percentages to look? Okay, yeah, you want flow. Yeah, you want a sense of purpose. But is that everything in life? And if not, let's be really, really clear, clear goals, right? As a flow trigger, let's get down to the most granular level, even day by day, week by week. What percentages are you sort of assigning to these different categories? And how are you an architect of your own life in a way that really builds that, that really creates it from the ground up? And I think that is... Ultimately, like the clients that I have, just kind of based on my history and my bio, that tends to be, it seems, the reason that they end up coming to me out of the the many amazing coaches that we have at FRC. And I think they're excited to do that work, but it's really difficult work. That takes a lot of reflection, a lot of introspection, a lot of self-awareness. I'd say that's probably the hardest part. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. One of the um, interesting findings from some of the research that that has looked at biggest regrets on one's deathbed yeah ironically is i wish i hadn't worked so hard 
which yep. comes back to back up your point about not overly obsessing with purpose and the work and the workload that comes with that. It's very easy to be extremely excessive in that domain, especially when you're a peak performer, especially when you're getting into flow in your work. And especially when you add that purpose element to it, because it is having an impact and it is a positive thing. But as you said, it can become an all consuming vortex that sucks the life out of the other elements of what matters to you, like family, friends, relationships, presence, health often is a big one that obviously goes down the drain there. Yeah. It's such a good point. I'm really glad you brought that up. I mean, anytime I'm teaching a pause site course, work on the client, giving a, a talk, whatever it might be, you just cannot help but mention that globally relationships are are the single greatest predictor of the good life, right? And life satisfaction overall and job satisfaction, by the way, you know, the 2018 United Nations Global Happiness Report showed, you know, a greater effect size in terms of interpersonal relationships at work than salary, than the interest level of the job, than stress, than work-life balance, which I think says a lot. And to your point, not only are many people on their deathbed kind of saying, oh, I wish I hadn't worked so hard, but they're often saying, like, I wish I would have spent more time with the people I love. And we had Lydia Denworth on our podcast a couple months ago. I don't know if you know Lydia's work, but she's got a bestseller out on the Next Big Idea Club called Friendship. And she really talked about friendship throughout a lifespan, really existing on a U-shaped curve. You know, meaning like it's it's incredibly important to us in adolescence, like we've all been in mm. middle school, high school, like in her words, rejection never stings as much really as it does in adolescence, because you're, you're searching for that core human need of belonging and relatedness. Right. And then for whatever reason, I think once we kind of get out into adulthood and like get into our careers, a lot of that stuff tends to fade a little bit. We get focused on family. We get focused on work. You know, things get busy. They kind of go by the wayside. And then as we age, people start to kind of realize very often anyway, like, oh, yeah, it's really these things that matter, these people that matter. You know, I I, I only have so much time left. I really want to be thoughtful about how I spend it. And a lot of times that means spending it with the people that that they care about and that they've shared lives with. And I think that's really beautiful. And I'd also love to see us sort of drag up the bottom of that you and not forget that. And and ironically enough, I think COVID has helped with that on some level. You know, I try to hang out with a group of buddies at least once a month or so. Um, I think a lot more people are, are kind of doing that. At first, I think it was a coping mechanism. And then people quickly realized like, Oh, well, you know, Zoom is like pretty easy <laughs> or whatever or whatever platform you're using, right? I can mm. actually connect with the people that that matter to me more often and, you know, more easily in some cases. It's not the same as as being in person, but in some ways it's actually facilitated some of that connection. It's I think it's been a reminder for folks of like what really matters in life. It's really interesting and paradoxical how yeah. COVID has accelerated connection, yeah. I think, especially on the friend level. And funnily enough, I literally just this morning sent out a Zoom invite to six friends from high school who I've, I've been sort of losing touch with. They're my closest friends. And it was COVID that prompted the fact, you know, do, doing just a once a month Zoom catch up 
becoming a, a socially normal thing, which has reduced a lot of the friction in setting something like that up pre-COVID, setting up kind of a you know a monthly Zoom call with a friend group might have seemed a little strange or unnecessary, and now it's now it's the norm. So it's funny yeah. the way that's gone around full circle. Yeah, yeah. And to your point, you know, I think that's also one of the hard things about flow is I agree with you. Like flow is so badass. It's so addictive. It's so interesting. People want more and more of it. And I think sometimes the hard part is like turning it off or saying no. And, you know, like I said, really getting down to that granular level where, you know, most weeks I give myself about 36 hours from kind of Friday afternoon to Saturday night. I'm unplugging. I'm not checking email. I'm not writing. I'm not, you know, reading, whatever it might be. It's just, it's time with my wife. It's time with my dogs. It's catching up with people, you know, meals, those sorts of things. And especially for people who are kind of always climbing the next hill, which is the case often, as you know, with a lot of people chasing flow, they're always looking at that that challenge skills balance. Like, how can I keep pressing, right? As in Stevens, where it's like the grit to kind of say no or the grit to recover and like take a break, I think can be a real challenge for for folks who are getting after it. Yeah, it's a good thing for folks to try and drill down on also, which is, yeah. you know, what am I driving for what am I truly striving for? You know, the immediate thing maybe that I think I'm striving for is to build this business or hit this revenue target or, you know, generate this amount of passive income. But what are the more primary desires that I actually have that are sitting underneath that, that this pursuit is masking, like, you know, a desire for connection or a desire to feel acknowledgement from a broader group of people or something like that. So I think kind of parsing out those motivations so that you can get after it fully, but yeah. at least doing it with the awareness of, you know, the fact that building that business is not necessarily going to meet the need that you have underneath it for connection that is kind of entangled in that drive. Yeah. And, and you know, like, talking about this, you got to bring up hedonic adaptation, right? Like, even if it does meet some of these like core needs that we have, you know, you mentioned PERMA and accomplishment and and goals are important, setting goals, meeting goals, right? People like to feel a sense of competency, mastery, you know, that they're kind of doing the things they've set out to do. And the unfortunate fact is we're going to quickly become satisfied by those things, right? Like the, the reward chemicals are going to metabolize, the sort of sense of satisfaction is going to go away. You know, anyone who's ever bought a new car, a pair of sneakers or accomplished a goal or met somebody new and been excited to start dating them, we've all experienced it, right? Like the honeymoon period is there's legitimate science around it. You're going to get used to the stuff that makes you happy and satisfied. So it's really important, I think, to focus on are you getting a sense of satisfaction from the process in the day to day, not only from your career or, you know, professional goals, but from just living a good life, right. And paying attention to the kind of more nuanced things within it that uh, can have a greater impact and can sort of sustain that sense of well-being. Yeah. Hedonic adaptation is a really interesting one because yeah. it works both ways in that, the blessing and gift of hedonic adaptation is the extent to which we are able to adapt to adverse circumstances and changes like people becoming, yeah. you know, returning to, to roughly a level of baseline happiness, even when in prison or struggling with 
health conditions or paralysis or, or death of loved ones and grief. Yet, obviously, the inverse of that is that we adapt to improvements in our circumstances. And the way I've talked about it before is that you want to try and be increasingly adaptable on the adverse side of the equation and, and dial that up as much as possible because that's a good thing. But you want to try and fight hedonic adaptation when it comes to the positive things on that side of the spectrum. What are some of the things that you recommend in general to minimize or reduce the taking for granted effect that hedonic adaptation results in? And I'll give you an example of something that I often recommend to folks, which is just a gratitude practice that can Oh, help. it's gratitude. It's 100% gratitude, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely the low hanging fruit, but gratitude Anytime I talk to people about it, I feel like you have to give a disclaimer, right? Like, oh, yeah, I know you probably saw this in whatever kind of like pop psych article or, you know, whatever kind of like tabloid mag. And it seems like kind of the trendy thing. But there is some really legitimate, rigorous, hardcore science around it. You know, random assignment, placebo controlled trials or gratitude journal for many people is like taking a pill that can lead to boosts in happiness, boosts in optimism, you know, improve sleep, improve immunity. But what was so cool, and actually it's funny we're talking about it because it was this episode that originally got you and I connected is early on in, in FRC radio, you had an episode, I think, with Glenn Fox and Scott Barry Kaufman, and you went into this very thing. It's fascinating to see the relationship between gratitude and things like creativity and achievement and meaning, right? Now, that's that's sort of tangential, but to your question particularly, the basic idea is this, right? Like the, the brain is inherently sort of attracted to the negative. A lot of people have, have heard this phrase, the negativity bias, we have to have sort of a bias towards the negative because it's a survival mechanism, right? We needed to pay attention, evolutionarily speaking, to the metaphorical saber-toothed tiger, or we wouldn't get another chance to pay attention to anything, right? So you, you got to watch out for that stuff. But, you know, oftentimes the truth is, for those of us that are, are privileged and fortunate enough to have lives like this, there aren't a lot of saber-toothed tigers, but that bad stuff still sticks really easily, so how do you combat that? How do you combat hedonic adaptation? You practice paying attention to the good. And that's what gratitude is, right? It's just slowing the hell down and trying to pay more attention to what's already there and really savor it. And, you know, there's a great book by Dr. Rick Hansen, Hardwiring for Happiness, that goes into a lot of the science around this and neuroplasticity and, and related concepts practice savoring the good is really in essence downloading or installing the good experiences right we don't have to do much of that with the the unpleasant experiences like the first time you put your finger into into a flame and get burned you're going to remember that right <laughs> like you know you don't need much practice there but the pleasant stuff for whatever reason you know it it doesn't stick quite as easily and so i think cultivating not just general gratefulness, but a grateful disposition, right? an attitude of gratitude about some of the, the smaller and simpler things in life is so easy to do. Well, I shouldn't say so easy to do. It's easy to different degrees for different people. But the act of doing a gratitude journal is a relatively simple thing that people can put into you know, their daily habits and routines 
and it can have incredibly profound effects. And, you know, I'll just say personally, that's been a big thing for me when I first started studying positive psychology. It's something I do five, six days a week. I tend to take weekends off, but almost every day there's a gratitude journal, kind of a what went well thing from the day before, um, you know, something along those lines. And then I think also just being being specific, getting granular about your gratitude. Like, I, you know, I just tell folks that I'm working with my family, my wife, my dogs, my friends, my job, those could make my gratitude journal every single day. No problem. Right. But remember, hedonic adaptation is like, you're going to get used to some of those things. How can you kind of find satisfaction and gratitude and, and things that maybe are a little bit more novel? And so, you know, for 12 years, I was out in your neck of the woods. I was living and working in Los Angeles, but I'm originally from Michigan. And so you'll appreciate this being, being Irish, you know, I miss the rain. I miss the <laughs> rain. I miss storm clouds. So like on the rare occasion that you'd get a good rain in LA, especially if you got thunder, which, you know, was so rare that always made the gratitude journal, right? Like just sit there and soak it in a little bit, the smell of it, the feel of it. Um, the fact that, you know, it's going to help with, hopefully help with, you know, droughts and fires and things of that nature. So I think not just practicing gratitude, but really challenging oneself to drill into some of the simple things can really help buffer against that hedonic adaptation. And there's good studies that reveal that as well. That's one of the best ways to combat it. Nice. Love that. Like, funnily enough, one of my one of my top items for my gratitude journal when I was living in LA was was not rain, but was the sun that was usually beating down on my face while doing that gratitude journal but anyway now that i live in philly the sun is yeah exactly (laughs) exactly yeah i spent enough time in ireland for that to be the case Uh, another thing i think it's worth mentioning that you know it's very much so or at least gratitude maybe is a subset of which is just perspective as well gratitude obviously shapes perspective but there are other ways to shape perspective like exposure to people who are in less fortunate circumstances than you are across you know any different category, whether that be financial or anything like that, or physical. And so getting into those settings and making sure to kind of not put yourself in a bubble or an ivory tower, is really, really an important one as well, I think, because it's quite, it's easy to lose perspective. So I think that's key. And uh, just as we're, as we're coming to close here, Nick, I want to ask you a research genie question, which obviously you've heard before, which is if you at any point, could click your finger and have all the research immediately get done to fully scientifically, academically answer any question you have, what would that question be? The answer is easy. The The science is not. But, you know, if you could sort of set up this perfectly controlled sort of like lab experiment around education, you know, how do we, how do we build systems that create a better world? And and by that, I don't necessarily mean, you know, GDP and jobs and the things that education is typically sort of in service of, but how do you produce and cultivate and sort of actualize more young people who turn into adults that, you know, want to do right by others, have a sense of passion and motivation you know, can contribute sort of their their greatest potentials to communities, to states, to nations, to humanity in ways that really create win-wins, right? That are are good for the world and good for them. I, I totally reject this 
again, you, you know, we mentioned Simon Sinek, this sort of like kind of finite game, right? I, I really like the idea of an infinite game. Sean Aker man- mentions big potential. Like it doesn't have to be zero sum. Um, I think there's plenty enough goodness to go around. And certainly I think one win-win scenario is getting more human beings who are crushing it and as a result, feel good about who they are. And as a result of that, you know, are a little kinder to the people around them and, and that more people can benefit from it. So, you know, that's that's a whole mess <laughs> in terms of like, you know, lines of research. And we're probably, unfortunately, a long way away from that. But if I could snap my finger and put all the studies in place at once, that's what I would want to know. And that's ultimately what I'm after. And I think a lot of a lot of educators who are really interested in and educating for flourishing, um, not necessarily achievement or, you know, grades, whatever it might be, would really like to know. Great, boss. Well, thanks a ton for joining us. Appreciate it big time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.